And let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans, chapter 10. And I'm going to read and preach verses 14 and 15 this morning. Some fairly well-known verses. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and so on. Paul has just stated that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but now he adds that in order for them to call on the name of the Lord for salvation, someone needs to go to them and preach to them the good news. If someone doesn't go and preach, they won't hear the gospel, and if they don't hear the gospel, they can't believe it. And if they don't believe it, they won't call on the name of the Lord for salvation. So there's a clear logic to these verses. And the implications are also clear for us as Christians. Simply put, we must go and we must preach. We'll talk about what that means and what that looks like for each of us. But before we begin, let's pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray together. God, we ask for your help as we come to these verses. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us to receive the truths of your word with a simple faith and humility and teachability. And we pray that you would equip us to go and to proclaim the gospel to the lost who are all around us so that by the power of your spirit, they might hear and believe and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 10, reading verses 14 and 15. These are the very words of God. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Just a quick word on the structure of these verses before we dive into them. Paul said in verse 13 that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And then what he does again in verses 14 and 15 is he he sort of reverse engineers that call. He starts with calling on the name of the Lord for salvation and works backwards, laying out the necessary steps that lead to that call in the form of rhetorical questions. How will they call if they haven't believed? How will they believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So you see how he's doing that working backwards. But the necessary steps in their logical order are actually the reverse of that. First, someone needs to be sent. Then that someone needs to preach. Then the other person needs to hear. They need to believe. And they need to call on the name of the Lord. So the textual order is actually the reverse of the logical order. Sort of like if you found a recipe for baking cookies that had the same rhetorical structure for some odd reason. It might read something like this. How then will you have delicious cookies unless you bake them in the oven? 
And how will you bake them in the oven unless you put the cookie dough onto a baking sheet? And how will you put the cookie dough onto a baking sheet unless you first combine the ingredients? And how will you combine the ingredients unless you decide to make cookies? So the textual order of that strangely worded recipe starts with the delicious cookies and works backwards, even though the logical order starts with the cook and the ingredients and then proceeds with the necessary steps in their proper order. It's the same with these verses. Textual order starts with calling on the name of the Lord, works backwards, even though the logical order starts with someone being sent and preaching and then proceeds with the necessary steps in their proper order. The order is reversed really for rhetorical effect, memorability, impact, so that instead of reading like a recipe, we have a beautiful piece of memorable prose to help us remember the necessity of going and proclaiming the gospel to others. So we're going to follow the textual order, as you can see in your sermon notes there in terms of the progression, but let's keep the logical order in mind as we go. So let's look at question number one about calling and belief. Again, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Paul said in the previous verse, quoting Joel 2:32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now he picks up on that word calls. And asks the rhetorical question, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, they won't call on him for salvation unless they believe he can save them. Unless they believe he is able to save them. So if you're in a situation where you need emergency help, why do you call 911? Well, you call because you believe the police can help you. You believe the paramedics can help you. If you didn't believe they could help you, you wouldn't call. If people don't believe that Jesus can save them, they won't call on him to save them. But if they do believe he can save them, then they will call on him to save them. Of course, it's not enough only to believe that Jesus is able to save you. You also need to believe in him and trust in him and call upon him to save you. Back to the chair analogy, it's not enough merely to believe that the chair could hold you up if you were to sit in it. You also need to go ahead and sit in it. You also need to trust the chair, to put your whole weight into the chair. But of course, you're not going to do that unless you first believe that it's going to hold you up. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So calling on the name of the Lord for salvation is not a blind leap of faith into the dark, not knowing if someone's going to catch you. No, calling on the name of the Lord for salvation is based on the belief that he will hear you and that he will save you according to the promise he makes to you in the gospel. As Christians, as those who've already called on the name of the Lord for salvation, I think it's important for us to remember two things here. First, the only reason we called on God is because he first called us. He called us externally through the proclamation of the gospel. Someone 
who went to us and preached to us the good news, and he called us internally through his effectual call and the regenerating work of his spirit. And he did that when we were dead in our sins. And that's what enabled us to respond to that call by calling on him in faith for salvation. So the only reason we called on God is because he first called us. And secondly, I think it's just good for us to remember that we, we can continue to call on God every day in prayer as believers. It's not like we call on God once and that's it. It's not like we only get one phone call. No, we get unlimited minutes with God. We can call on him anytime, day or night, and he will always answer. His answer won't always come right away. His answer won't always come in the way that we expect, but it will come. Psalm 18, verse 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So what enemies are you facing right now? Call upon the Lord, and he will save you. Psalm 18, verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Whatever your distress may be this morning, in your distress, call upon the Lord. Cry to him for help. He will hear you, and he will save you, and he will help you. Question number two is in the second half of verse 14. After asking how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, Paul asks, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So the logical order thus far is hearing, then believing, then calling. If someone's going to call, they first need to believe, and if someone's going to believe, they first need to hear. They hear, then believe, then call. The gospel message does not call for belief in general. The gospel message calls for belief in Jesus. And in order to believe in Jesus, you have to hear about Jesus. If you don't hear about him, you can't believe in him. People need to hear the message and they need to understand, comprehend the message. You need to be able to make sense of it. I think one implication for us is that we should do all we can to try to explain it to them in such a way that they understand it. And of course, only the Spirit ultimately can make them understand it, but we should do all we can to make the message clear. Part of what that means is that we should define our terms, terms like God and sin and grace, and faith, and repentance. We can't assume that when people hear us use those terms, they have the same definition of those terms in their mind as we do in ours, or more importantly, as the Bible does. So perhaps when, when two Mormons or two Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, and they use some of these terms, they mean something very different by them. Or when your non-Christian classmate or coworker or neighbor uses those terms or hears those terms, they may not understand what they really mean according to the Bible. 
if each of those terms in their mind is like a bucket, we should try to make sure that each bucket is filled with the pure water of biblical truth, not with the muddy water of a false religion or of pop psychology or of any other unbiblical worldview like we've been talking about in Sunday school. We want to fill those buckets with the clear, pure water of the word of God so that people can hear and understand the content of the gospel. Now, the wording here in the Greek could have the sense conveyed in the ESV and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard or it could have the sense and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard. So how are they to believe in Jesus of whom they have never heard or perhaps how are they to believe in Jesus whom they have never heard. John Murray takes the latter view and says, a striking feature of this clause is that Christ is represented as being heard in the gospel when proclaimed by the sent messengers. The implication is that Christ speaks in the gospel proclamation. And if that's the sense of the words, that can be, of course, a great encouragement to us in our evangelism, can it? That insofar as we are accurately communicating the message of the gospel to someone, they're not just hearing about Christ, they're hearing Christ through us. God is making his appeal to them through us, 2 Corinthians 5.20. That can give us courage and confidence and a sense of dependence on Christ in our evangelism. But regardless of how we understand the wording here, the main point is still clear, that people can't believe if they've never heard. And what about those who've never heard the gospel? How should we think about them? If it's true that you can't believe if you've never heard, does that mean that those who've never heard are still responsible for not believing? And the short answer is, those who've never heard are still responsible for their sin against God. They're not responsible for rejecting the message of the gospel, of course, because they've never heard the message of the gospel, but they are responsible for rejecting the message of general revelation. They're responsible for their rebellion against their maker. They're responsible for their sin against God. As it says in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We might ask, what truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, and so on. So those who've never heard the gospel are still without excuse for their rejection of general revelation. And unless they hear the gospel and believe and call upon Christ, they cannot be saved. As Peter said in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved.
And that makes the task of missions all the more urgent, all the more necessary, which we'll talk more about at the end. Question number three is at the end of verse 14. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? People can't hear it if we don't preach it. And there's formal preaching, like what I'm doing now, public proclamation of the gospel by a pastor in a pulpit. But there's also informal preaching, if you will, like what we all seek to do in personal evangelism. And if preaching doesn't happen, then people won't hear or believe or call on the Lord. What is it that we're called to preach to others so that they can hear and believe and call on the Lord? Well, we're not called to preach politics. We're not called to preach morality. We're not called to preach self-help. We're not called to preach our own ideas. We're called to preach the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what is the gospel? Could you give a summary of it in 60 seconds or so? If you don't think you can, perhaps it'd be a good thing to, good thing to try this afternoon. It'll only take a minute. It's good practice for us to try such things. A helpful outline of the gospel message is God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. The gospel is a message revealed in the Bible about God, who is our creator and our king, who made us in his image and for his glory. And it's also a message about sin, about man, about the fact that all of us have turned away from God. We've all rebelled against the king. We've all defaced his image. We've all fallen short of his glory. And our sin deserves his wrath. And no amount of good we do can make up for the bad we've already done. But the good news of the gospel is the news about Christ, the Son of God who became a man, who lived a perfect life of obedience that we haven't lived, who died a sacrificial death on the cross that we deserve to die, who rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And he now offers salvation to sinners on the basis of his finished work. And the response that he calls for is repentance and faith. He calls us to repent of our sin, that is to turn from our sin in our hearts and to put our faith in him, to believe in him, to trust in him as our savior and our Lord. And he promises that all who repent and believe will be saved and will have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the message we're called to preach so that people can hear. As we say in our mission statement, we witness by reflecting and proclaiming Christ in our community and around the world. And the proclaiming Christ part is the preaching Paul's talking about here. Reflecting Christ is also important, to be sure, displaying his character in our lives, living out the gospel. But preaching the gospel is distinct from living the gospel. Proclaiming Christ is distinct from reflecting Christ. Though both are essential, 
Both are part of our witness. They are the two wings of the witness plane. Both wings are needed. If we proclaim Christ with our words, but don't reflect Christ with our lives, our actions will speak louder than our words. But if we reflect Christ in our lives, but never actually proclaim him with our words, people won't hear. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Question number four. Verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Pastors and missionaries are sent formally by the church, but there's a sense in which all of us are sent by God every day into our home, into our school, into our workplace, into our community to preach the good news to others. And since the good news is so good, the feet of those who preach it are beautiful. That's what Isaiah 52 verse 7 says, the verse Paul quotes at the end of verse 15 there. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Kids, we don't normally think of our feet as being beautiful, do we? But the feet of those who preach the good news are said to be beautiful in the Bible. Not because the feet themselves are beautiful, but because the news they bring, the message they bring, is beautiful. Your feet are beautiful when you use them to go to a friend and tell them about Jesus. Sometimes our feet are hesitant. Sometimes our feet are slow to go to someone to bring them that good news. Sometimes I feel like our Our feet are encased in two large, heavy, concrete blocks. Or it seems as if our legs were two trees firmly rooted into the ground. But we are sent by God. And so with his help, we must go. We shouldn't drag our feet. We should move our feet. We should even be like Philip in Acts 8 who ran to the chariot that the Ethiopian eunuch was riding in. As we sing together, take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. And of course, it's not just enough, not enough just to go. You also have to preach. If Philip only ran up to the Ethiopian in his chariot, but didn't actually say anything to him, he wouldn't have heard the good news explained to him from the book of Isaiah that he was reading at the time. But Philip not only went, he also preached. He used his feet, but he also opened his mouth. By God's grace, we can follow his example. We can follow the example of Paul, who was sent by God all over the place and who preached the gospel to people wherever he went. Of course, we can follow the example, ultimately, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was sent by the Father into the world to preach the good news and ultimately to die for sinners on the cross so that salvation through faith alone in him could be proclaimed to people in all nations. How will they call if they haven't believed? How will they believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear unless someone preaches? 
And how will they preach unless they are sent? That's the recipe. Those are the necessary steps in order for someone to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. We are sent. We preach the good news. And by the power of the Spirit, people hear and believe and call on the Lord for salvation. Three takeaways from all this. First, this underscores the urgency and the necessity of evangelism and missions. People need to hear the gospel in order to believe it and call on the Lord for salvation. And therefore, we need to go to them and preach to them. It's like they're sick and they're going to die soon. And we have the medicine that can heal them. They'll die if they don't take it. And there's no other way for them to live. And we have the medicine. So let's take it to them. They may fail to take it, but let's not fail to take it to them. Charles Spurgeon wrote rather strikingly, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? This underscores the urgency and the necessity of evangelism and missions. Secondly, we should never lose sight of our utter inability to do this in our own strength. Yes, God has ordained to use us as sowers to spread the seed of his gospel. But as we think about going and as we think about preaching, let's not forget that we cannot do it in our own strength. We can only do it in his. As we're about to sing together, we go in faith. Our own great weakness feeling and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts, a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. We go, our own great weakness feeling, and yet in God's strength and in God's name we go. Third, and finally, go and preach. Go to people and proclaim the gospel to them. Take the medicine to them. Don't withhold it from them. Go into your workplace. Go into your school. Go into your neighborhood. Go perhaps even into your own family. Go to the grocery store. Go to the haircut place. Go to the mechanic. Go to the doctor's office. Go wherever you go and preach the good news to people. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Don't be content to plant your feet and to close your mouth. Ask God to help you to move your feet and to open your mouth. Remember the urgency. Remember the necessity. Go your own great weakness feeling, but go in God's strength and in God's name. 
Go and preach. And trust God to open people's ears so they can hear, so they can believe and call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for these verses that are so beautiful and so powerful and so convicting and so moving and inspiring at the same time. We pray that you'd help us to respond to these truths by calling on you for help and by moving our feet and opening our mouths to proclaim the gospel to the people around us, to get the medicine to them. And may we go in faith in your strength and in your name. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's take a minute now during the meditation on the word to think and pray about what we've heard and then we'll sing together.